I've been thinking lately about the word glory. It's not a word we use a lot in our everyday lives. Over the past few weeks, many of us have been hearing a Ukrainian phrase that we might not have heard before. Slava Ukraine, heroyam slava, which means glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes. It's a nationalist slogan that has recently become a kind of motto for the Ukrainian defense. And so President Volodymyr Zelensky uses it at the end of inspirational videos that he releases. And politicians around the world have echoed it from Boris Johnson in the UK to Nancy Pelosi here in the United, here in the United States. Slava Ukraine. We might call the flag old glory sometimes. But in this country, I find we don't use the word glory as much about our politics and our leaders. Of course, the stakes may not be quite as high. But it's a style of language that's very at home in the former Soviet Union, where the map is dotted with monuments to heroes, glorious heroes from World War II, or what's known there as the Great Patriotic War, where cities are designated as hero cities that withstood sieges and battles, where the language of glory rolls easily off lips, whether in the form of propaganda or in the form of earnest remembrance. Today, the descendants of those who defended the Soviet Union from the Nazi invasion are fighting each other and claiming the legacy of that glory on both sides, but in very different ways. Zelensky and the Ukrainians speak of the glory of the brave and noble underdog, the glory of defending one's home against a brutal and powerful invader, the glory of freedom and independence in an open society. And on the other hand, President Putin began this war in search of another kind of glory, the glory of power, of empire, the glory of conquering lost territory and recapturing the faded status of a superpower. Two images of glory. Glory of the conqueror over against glory of the liberator or the defender. Scripture talks a lot about glory. In the Hebrew scriptures, glory is something that belongs, of course, primarily and truly only to God. In the Hebrew Bible, glory is written of as a kind of luminous, radiant quality that emanates from God's presence, and even as something with weight and heft to it, like a kind of royal robe that God wears and that shines forth from God. The glory of God in heaven. It's a glory that Jesus chose to lay aside, as Paul tells us in the letter to the Philippians, part of which we heard today, that Jesus chose to set aside his heavenly glory and take the form of a servant, in other words, the form of one of us, to be born as a human. And he came to a world where people chased human glory, much the same way they do today. He came to a world with its own superpower, 
the glory of Rome was the glory of empire, but also tinged with something of the sacred because eternal Rome was favored and protected by the gods. And its emperors were beginning even sometimes to call themselves gods, or at least to wait in a dignified way to be named as gods after their deaths. Pontius Pilate was the emperor's representative. And so he was the face of the glory of Rome, commanding his soldiers whose spears gleamed and whose armor intimidated. But when Jesus came to Jerusalem with his small band of followers riding on a donkey, the crowds also sang songs of glory, songs we echoed this morning. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, glory in the highest heaven. They hoped that Jesus was the one who would set them free from occupation. They hoped he would reign as a good king, who would bring justice and freedom and prosperity. They hoped that he had come to clothe himself in the glory of the liberator. And instead he went to the cross. Herod did clothe him in an elegant robe, but only to heighten the irony, to make him look even more the fool as he sent Jesus back to Pilate as the legionaries laughed at him and beat him. And instead of rising up to free the people, Jesus emptied himself and accepted an unjust death. Where's the glory in that? This week, we have seen new scenes of terrible brutality on the streets of Bucha and other towns in Ukraine. Civilians becoming the victims of rockets or snipers or even simply executed in cold blood. Lives that ended abruptly in a second, without reason, without justice. It's another example of a terrible truth that in this world, evil very often has its way. Evil very often destroys the innocent, destroys lives, ends them. And there's no recourse, not for these people. There may be responses. The defenders of Ukraine may fight harder, may recapture villages, may even prevent some more such atrocities from happening in the future. The glory of the liberator is far better than the glory of the conqueror. But even a liberator can't bring back the dead, can't bring justice to those who have already had it ripped away from them. No gun can do that. No missile, no drone, no tank. And of course, in the large scheme of history, liberators so often face the temptation to become conquerors themselves and fall prey to that human cycle of violence. Jesus left the glory of heaven. He left the royal robes of eternity to become one of us, and when he did that, he refused to seek the false glory of the conqueror. 
he didn't even take up the genuine but lesser glory of the liberator. He had a different mission. He came to bring hope, not just to those of his people that might manage to survive under Roman occupation, and not just for the rest of their fragile and uncertain lives on earth. He came to fight death itself, and not by dealing it out to his enemies, but by accepting it, by living it, by transforming it. This year, as we do every third year, we heard the passion story from the Gospel of Luke, which is the only one of the Gospels that includes the line on Jesus' lips, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus accepts the cross for his people, for us, and even for his enemies themselves. There is hope for those precious children of God who lie slain in Bucha. Not any normal earthly hope, because their end has come. But hope deeper, hope eternal. Hope for redemption, hope even for justice. Just as there's hope for the elderly couple for whom death came quickly on a park bench in Kharkiv, and hope for the scared Russian kid in a cramped tank he never chose. And hope for everyone whose suffering goes unredeemed and unliberated in this life. Hope for those who are dying in Ethiopia and Syria. And hope for those whose suffering takes place in less spectacular ways. Hope for the griefs of your life. Hope for all of us. Hope in this life and hope in God's eternity. Because Jesus has entered into the deepest part of our sorrow and our suffering. Because God has become the victim of injustice. And God has more to the story. And so there is hope for us, and maybe even for the Pilots and Putins of the world, if their hearts can be turned if they can ever be cracked open by the one who prays even for their forgiveness, who has died and who yet lives. For he chose the glory that is the glory of a servant, which is the true glory of the living God.